0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Part mythology and part the result of the current presidential campaign, we have this image of the U.S.-Mexican border as divided territory. We hear folks talking about it as if at one time North was North and South was South, and never the twain met. The truth is that that's never been the case. The border has almost always been a porous membrane through which people, drugs, money, and crime could easily pass. The border was the kind of place that, for a poor, destitute teenage boy, was a kind of criminal Disneyland. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Dan Slater. He's a former reporter for the Wall Street Journal. He's written for the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. He's a graduate of Colgate University and Brooklyn Law School, and he's the author of the new book, Wolf Boys, Two American Teenagers in Mexico's Most Dangerous Drug Cartel. Dan Slater, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: It's great to have you here. I want to talk first about what the border is really like, because there is this mythology that somehow north is north, south is south, but that's never been the case. It's always been uh, pretty porous.
1: That's absolutely right. Uh, There is a sort of myth in American history that there's been some kind of golden era where we've had a secure border, and, and you see politicians play on that notion all the time, especially if they're trying to beat out an incumbent. Um, But, you know, as you say, it's simply never been the case. The border has always been an extremely ephemeral concept.
0: And it's also very Wild West-like in terms of of what goes on there and the movement of of crime and drugs and money going back and forth.
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, the city on the border where Wolf Boys is set, which is Laredo, Texas, uh, as you say, I thought I thought it was a great way to put it—a sort you know, a criminal Disneyland, um, you know, filtered through Stephen King, perhaps, or something. Um, it, 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 it is, it is a wild west, uh, especially in Laredo. Uh, the boys that I write about in the book would pass back and forth across that border constantly, um, from the moment they could walk. And uh, so there, there has never been security there, and I think the story told in Boys really shows that.
0: And one of the points that that you make is that all if there were an effort to make a tighter border or a wall or what have you, that that really would make very little difference at the end of the day.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, not not uh, not only would it make very little difference at the end of the day, it could possibly. Um, Uh, raise the amount of smuggling, because what happens when you up interdiction efforts, whether that means doubling the amount of law enforcement at the border or whether that means throwing up a gigantic theoretical wall, uh, what you do is you make smuggling of all sorts uh, more risky. And when you make smuggling more risky, you make the prices of those black market goods go up. And when the prices of those goods go up, there are more people who are willing to take the risk in order to make the money.
0: And talk about how people, young boys like Gabriel Cardona, see this as, as they grow up and see what's going on at the border. Talk about it from their point of view.
1: Well, from the point of view of the boys in the book, uh, they're growing up in Laredo, which is one of the most marginalized cities in America. It's, uh, it's 90% Hispanic. It is on the border, um, you know, a lot of poverty there. The school system is horrible, and they grow up in these neighborhoods where smugglers are all around them. They wake up in the morning, they see, you know, the illegal immigrants coming through, they see people packing narcotics for the drive north, it's their father, it's their uncle, it's... it's it is everywhere, and, and so the aspiration for these kids, um, in the absence of other things, becomes joining that underworld. Um, now, not everyone becomes a hitman for the cartel across the border, but many of the people, and it's not just the boys, it's the women as well, it's the mothers too, um, become involved in some aspect of the underworld, and it's it's... Vast, you know. We often think of it as just the drugs move north, but it's also vehicles and weapons go south, um, cash smuggling, human immigrant smuggling. There's the money laundering business. So you know, it goes, uh, it goes on and on and on. And Gabriel Cardona and the boys in this book, uh, they had a hand in pretty much all aspects of the black market. Um, by the time they were. 14, 15 years old.
0: What do you sense determines how far some of these boys are willing to go? The ones that, that will do drug running, the ones that will do a little bit to make some money, and the ones that'll that'll become assassins, that'll go further like, like Gabriel?
1: Well, I think it has to go with ambition. It has to do with um, personality, genetics, environment. Uh, one of One of uh, the most intense parts of Wolf Boys is the chapter that is set in the training camp in Mexico Mm -hmm. where they send these boys um, to go and learn violence, to go and learn murder uh, before they're sent out on work. And from the perspective of the men running the cartel, the men running the training camps, the purpose of those camps is to separate out who are the frios they call them you know the cold ones who have it in them who have it in their blood to uh, to take a life
0: do these boys see any arc to their lives from this where do they think this is going to lead them oh, you mean you have
1: to remember that 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 they're so young and these are teenage boys and so uh, you know, among many of the things they lack, in addition to a conscience, is a concept of a future. Uh, When you're a teenage boy, you're used to there being very little consequence in life. You fall down, you bounce back up. Um, You can drink a lot of alcohol, you can take a lot of drugs, you can pop up in the morning as if nothing happened. So there's that physical resilience and I think over time, what happened with these boys is they just they thought this was never going to end. Um, and it's not that they necessarily enjoyed the work. It's not that they necessarily enjoyed murdering people. But they certainly enjoyed what that brought them, the uh, respect and the ability to support their family. It? That, that's a major piece of male identity in Laredo.
0: What about the issue of identity and how these kids see themselves as Americans as Mexicans? well how does identity enter into this?
1: Well, I think there is a lot of conflict there um, you know they they don't uh, they don't identify really with American values with American politics because laredo is a city it's one of many cities along the border and elsewhere in america that simply are not brought into the fold um, so they stand at a distance from that i think these boys enjoyed being american um, for what it brought them in mexico it meant they could go to mexico and they could sort of have a leg up on everyone else um, because they spoke english because they had a passport and could move back and forth across the border freely. But apart from those advantages, um, American society did not give them much to be optimistic about.
0: They're, they're almost kids without a country in that respect.
1: They are. They are. And um, some people have asked me why I chose uh, you know the title Wolf Boys for the book, and there are many reasons behind it, but one of the reasons is that while I was writing the book, I was reading the novel uh, Lord of the Flies. Mm. And um, I started to see my story and the story of these boys through that Lord of the Flies lens, through these boys on an island, apart from the rest of the world. Um, and you know, they basically turn against one another, and, and that is really what... The Cartel Wars and the War on Drugs is about. It's not about the cartel bosses that we see on the front page of the newspaper. It's not about the Chapo Guzmans or the Pablo Escobars. It's really about young boys, young men uh, with no oversight, uh, slaughtering each other.
0: And talk about the, the other main character in this story, Detective Robert Garcia, the American who really is kind of the mirror image of these boys.
1: Robert Robert is a fascinating character. He was not what initially inspired me to pursue this book. You know, the the original inspiration was that I really felt like I needed to know the lives of these boys who'd become assassins. I wanted to know where they came from, but Robert's story, um, in some respects, became more interesting to me as I got further and further into the book. He is uh, he's a person who was born in Mexico and moved to the U.S. with his family when he was nine, and really a self-made family. They, they built their house in South Texas on a pile of dirt, um, You know, basically worked for everything they had. Uh, he decided not to go to college. He enlisted in the U.S. Army. He served four years, and then he and his wife, um, when he was still very young, settled in Laredo, Texas, and he became a cop. He did very well as a street cop in Laredo, and, and, and when he was in his 20s, he really enjoyed being a drug cop. He enjoyed doing the drug investigations. He enjoyed taking the drug off the street and making those arrests because he felt like it made a difference. Um, he did so well in that job that he won a temporary transfer to uh, DEA when he was about 29. So he went away for five or six years to go work at, you know, the federal level. And it was then that he really became disillusioned about the drug war because he started to see the big picture. He saw that, wow, we're, you know, we're actually not getting any of the drugs. We're barely getting 1% or 2% of everything that comes through. Um, So I think that when he returned to Laredo PD after that experience, he was very happy to leave the drug investigations be, uh, you know, uh, behind and become a homicide detective. And it was in that capacity that he pursued the Wolf Boys. Uh, I think stopping the violence felt much more meaningful to him, but he remains conflicted even today, uh, years after that investigation, and he's still not sure uh, what all of his years of work
0: have really added up to. I mean, in many ways, the wolf boys and the homicides that he investigated and these boys becoming assassins are really all part of this larger picture of the drug war.
1: Absolutely. I mean, they are part of the larger picture, and in some ways, they are the picture. As I said earlier, the way the drug war is marketed uh, in the newspapers and the media as being sort of these movie ready stories, the mythic stories of the cartel bosses, it really uh paints a false image of what's actually happening um it's it's you know it's really as i say it's about the foot soldiers it's about these young men and often boys who who are the ones who are hired to you know to work
0: to what extent does Gabrielle, or any of these boys, do, do they bring a conscience to bear after enough murders? To, what impact does it have on them?
1: I think, um, unfortunately, they become increasingly desensitized um, as the behavior is reinforced positively with respect and with money and with the uh, hope of promotion and the hope of the future. Um, one of the things that these boys seek out in joining the cartel, it's not just about the money, it's also about a sense of belonging. It's um, similar to maybe like you or I, we go to a university, and then after we get out, we have to go find a job, we have to find a way into American life or into life somewhere, we have to find a place who will hire us, and we sort of eagerly seek out that sense of belonging. We want someone to kind of you know, validate us, and for these boys in Laredo that come from such impoverished communities, they seek out that validation at a much earlier age, and so I think in addition to the money, the cartel provided a powerful sense of um, purpose and belonging, and in some ways, even a viable uh, career path, as, you know, bizarre as that sounds.
0: How do the drug lords, the bosses, those that recruit these kids, how did they see them, just as, as sort of disposable? What is, what is their view of them?
1: I, I think they saw them as disposable. I don't know if they saw them as any more disposable as any other of the underlings who work in a cartel. Um, but certainly they were very valuable pawns, especially the American boys, uh, because, as I was saying earlier, they can just do more than the Mexican boys can. They have a passport. They can move across freely. They speak English. um, And when they go to Texas or Chicago or Boston or San Francisco, they can blend in seamlessly in an American mall. They just look like a teenager.
0: How long do most of these kids last doing what they're doing?
1: Well, I think that the boys I write about in the book are uh, pretty... Good examples, um, typical examples they last they have they have their little moment in the sun. It you know lasts anywhere from maybe six months to a few years. Mm-hmm. They make some money. They live um, high on the horse, but constantly on the move, always staying in some rented safe house somewhere, um not knowing if they're going to be killed that afternoon. Mm-hmm. So it lasts for a little while, and then, if they're lucky, they wind up in an American prison at the end of it all. I'd say that's probably the best case scenario.
0: Talk a little bit about the siblings that these wolf boys have, and, and do they become kind of role models for other kids? The ones that are uh, having quote unquote success.
1: Absolutely, and that, that's that's you know one of one of the sadder things about it. Um, the siblings who go the way that. Gabriel went, for instance. They become sort of a respected young man within the cartel's hierarchy. They start making money. They start delivering, uh, you know, money to to the mother uh, of the family. Maybe maybe more money in a week than she makes in a year. Um, so that sort of respect is admired. Um, it becomes an aspiration. One of the more interesting things that I did in the course of my reporting uh, when I was in Laredo is that I went and spoke to the principal of his high school and the principal told me that he was like, look I basically oversee two different populations here. I oversee the population of people who will go into the drug business and I oversee the population of people who will pursue them um, as a cop or a federal agent and, and so, I mean, that's, that's the principal of your local high school. That's, that's the person who's supposed to be very optimistic mm. about the future for these kids. But, but that is just the reality in Laredo. It's, it's the reality in a lot of border uh, cities, both in the U.S. and in Mexico,
0: obviously. It's also the realities of the families who, even once they know what's going on and what these kids are doing, they're not uh, reluctant to take the money.
1: No, I think uh, of all the conflicted characters in this story, I think that Gabriel's mother uh, was one of the most conflicted. I mean, look, you know, you obviously don't approve of your son being a hitman, but at the same time, um, when life is as hard as it is down there, when you're a single mother, when you're raising four boys, um, you know, you're trying to do it all on your own. You're making maybe. Twenty thousand dollars a year, let's say. When your son brings you ten thousand um, dollars in a single week, you may know where that money comes from. You may suspect. You may not ask any questions because you don't want to know too much. Um, and 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 you, you know, you may even yell at him a little bit. You may uh, sort of you know beseech him to get out of the business, to go get a job. But at the same time, even as you're throwing up your hands. Um, you don't turn the money down. That's just not something that happens. It's something that we see in the movies. <laughs> but, um, you know, people need to survive. And I think as much as anything, the culture of Laredo, at least in these neighborhoods where the boys I'm writing about are from, the culture is one of survivalism.
0: To what extent is the public corruption that we hear about a contributor to all of this? The
1: public corruption is huge. Um we think of corruption in the drug wars and the cartel wars as a as an exclusively Mexican phenomenon but one of the aspects we don't appreciate is just how valuable the drug war is here in the US Uh, so many entities and it's not just law enforcement and we often hear about you know how um, you know, valuable. The drug war is to law enforcement because it provides a lot of law enforcement jobs. And that, of course, is true. But it's so many other industries are supported by this war. It's, it's the lawyers, the defense attorneys, the prosecutors, judges, people who work in the courts. Um, in Laredo, it's people who own the warehouses where the government stores, you know, the contraband that that it seizes. And it it, it just goes on and on and on. Um, so I, you know, I don't think you'd call that corruption because it's technically legitimate. It's a source of income, um, that kind of springs from the war on drugs. Um, but you know, the war, the, the war on drugs is a self-financing war. And, and, and and when you have a self-financing war, you're not going to have too many people in Washington who are eager to give that up.
0: Of course, beyond the, the war on drugs itself, the, talk about the wars between the competing cartels, the competing drug interests in Mexico.
1: Well, those wars are as internecine as it gets and endless. Uh, we think of it as uh, exclusively a, a war between these big organizations. We hear the name, you know, we hear, we hear, we hear uh, names like the Sinaloa cartel, the Gulf cartel the Zetas, um, which is the cartel that these boys worked for. Um, but, you know, often with, within that landscape, it's families fighting each other. It's um, brothers of the family banding together, joining a cartel, and then as the brothers rise up, they become the leaders of the cartel. But the sort of family wars never go away. Um, back in 05 and 06, when the boys and wolf boys were operating, um the larger war that was happening in laredo and in the mexican city across the border and with laredo was between the sinaloa cartel and the on the one hand there on you know the uh, uh... western side of mexico and then the Gulf cartel and the zetas on the other hand uh... and the reason they were fighting over laredo is because laredo is a very valuable border crossing it's arguably the most valuable border crossing Uh, It's the biggest overland port in the Western Hemisphere. It's where uh, I-35 begins. The interstate began a a stone's throw from Gabriel's house where he grew up. And uh, so it's enormously valuable as a port. And uh, when there is spillover violence from the cartel wars, it often happens in Laredo, Texas.
0: And is there anything that that you saw along the way or that anybody talked to you about, Garcia or anybody else, that that anybody thinks can mitigate any of this?
1: Um, Well, there are several arguments for ways to mitigate violence. Um, Nobody believes that we'll be successful with drug interdiction. I think that should be stated Mm -hmm. up front. In the book, I quote Robert Garcia as estimating... The actual interdiction rate is about 3%, meaning that for every 100 kilos of cocaine, uh, we is maybe three of them. Uh, but I've spoken to federal agents who work on the border that are way more conservative than he is and way more optimistic about the effectiveness of the war on drugs. And I've heard from people like that that that, that they think the interdiction rate is less than 1%. They'd be surprised if it was even 1%. So nobody believes that we're winning that war. As far as limiting violence, um, unfortunately, one of the most effective ways has been to basically leave the overlord um, alone. I mean, this is one of the arguments for why someone like Echapo Guzman should be out of prison, uh, because when he's out, there tends to be less violence. Um There was not as much violence in the 80s because there was a management structure. Hmm. And so when you take out the head of a cartel, uh, which has been the American law enforcement strategy for a long time now, what you do is you create a power vacuum. And it's often in those moments that we see the most violence in Mexico.
0: Dan Slater, the book is Wolf Boys, Two American Teenagers in Mexico's Most Dangerous Drug Cartel. Dan, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Thanks a lot, Jeff. It was a pleasure to be on your show.
0: Thank you.